Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. As most of you would know, Curran and I run a business called Ultimate OE. We specialise in sending young Kiwis and Aussies to Canada and Scotland to work in the hunting industry. Applications for next hunting season, so 2020, both in Canada and Scotland, are now open. As hunters, we're not often happy with inauthentic experiences. We're always looking for something adventurous, more exciting and more unique. Same goes for overseas experiences. We deliver once-in-a-lifetime opportunities working for the best outfitters in Canada and the best hunting estates in Scotland. Our train-before-you-go setup means that we can secure all the best jobs with the best employers, with the best people in the best spots, all ahead of time because they know you're going to turn up with the knowledge and skills to hit the ground running when you get there. If you're interested in an OE in Canada or Scotland next year based around hunting in the mountains, it doesn't get much better in my opinion. If you think you might be interested or just want to learn a little bit more about what we do, feel free to get in touch and get us on email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com. You can flick us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, either through the Educated Hunter or Ultimate OE pages. Either will work, whatever blows your hair back. Enjoy the show. Okay, today we've got Josh James, aka the Kiwi Bushman. And <laughs> we cover a lot of topic here, so we start with well, everything up to how Josh found himself on the West Coast, to the need to generate income, so having a having a go at the social life, I guess, and generating what is now the Kiwi Bushman, how that has led to American shows or shows on the Discovery channels and what that meant for James, where he finds himself now, and we also discuss local topics like, like the 1080 debate. So, you know, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of listening there. A super cool podcast. Uh, really good to have that conversation with Josh. I enjoyed it. You will too. Josh, thanks for taking some time out today and having a conversation with me. Basically, man, it's an interesting story. Well, I believe it's an interesting story, so I just want to get the rundown on how Josh James became Josh James. So where, where did hunting start for you? Where did hunting start? It started when I was a kid. I've always chased things around from, from quite an early age, from when I was a toddler. I've just wanted to chase things and catch things. I guess that's it's every young boy's natural instinct is to catch things. I started off with insects and worms and grasshoppers and anything that moved and I always wanted to catch birds and mice and all the rest of it. So I guess that was that was when it started way back then. Hunting for food didn't really come about till I was in my mid teens. But yeah, that's when uh that's when the, the hunting started way back when I was a young fella. It's um for me it's one of those it's a typical youth, if you like. But um, now that I've done a few more podcasts, I'm starting to realise that it's actually not as typical as I thought it was. In a, in a strange environment <laughs> um, you know and some people are getting into hunting later but it's awesome that I guess there's still a generation about like yours and myself that started I guess so primitively like it was just naturally in us yeah I guess it depends on 
where people grow up and what their surroundings are too. I was lucky enough that I, in my early years anyway, I grew up on farms and so I was always out in the yard and there was always heaps of stuff to, to pique my interest and to, <laughs> to get me chasing stuff. Yeah. You see, grow up, well, you grow up in a big city, there's going to be insects that are around as well. I guess it depends on who your role models are too. You know, I was always looking up to my uncles and my grandfather and they were, they were keen hunters and fishers and I just wanted to be up to be just like them. Yeah, and so they were, you would consider them a, an influence you know, at a young age or a mentor as so? Oh, massive influence, my uh, my uncles and my granddad. My dad wasn't around a heck of a lot. Him and mum divorced when I was five. I saw him every couple of months and he took us fishing and whatnot, but he wasn't a hunter or a fisher. So my biggest role models, I guess, were my uncles and my granddad who lived on farms were farmers and they were hard workers and keen hunters and fishermen and I wanted to grow up and be just like them. Mm-hmm. And you were probably... Well, like I, I, I haven't come from a separated family, but I think you, in my belief and my thoughts, you know, you're lucky that you found role models in that form, you know, based on not having a dad around. Because you know, I know there's a lot of great woman hunters, but it's probably a little bit, especially I guess we go back thirty odd years or what have you. You know, there wouldn't have been a, a lot of women out there that were passionate fishermen and hunters and stuff. It's it's growing trend now, but it is a growing trend. Yeah, there's a lot of women starting to hunt, and I think the Instagram, Facebook side of things goes a long way in that respect as far yep. as influence go you know there's a lot of influences out there or a lot of influential people that back in the day before social media and before this internet thing people wouldn't have seen you know they just would have seen their immediate role models the fella down the road or uncle fred or their father or their mother and these days there's so much more scope for people mm-hmm. to reach out and be influenced in a good and a bad way yeah, man, it was, it, I hundred percent agree. Good and bad, but but you're dead right. It opens up. It opens up. I guess role model is the right term. I don't. You know, there must be. You know, there's obviously a variation amongst how much of a role model because the one thing I do find with a, a slight negative to social media, and you're probably one of the few exceptions. It's really easy to make it look really good all the time, uh, and and that's not the reality of life. You know, like you, there's going to be some shit times, and and I mean that. In life as a whole, but then straight back to hunting. Like every hunt's not going to be successful. Um, you know, you're going to get cold, you're going to get wet, you're going to fail, you're going to miss, you're going to have gear failure. You know, that's hunting. That's reality. And I, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you're right. I guess you're right there. And a lot of people have commented that my productions show the cold, hard truth of it. And I'm not always perfect. And I do gut shoot animals sometimes and we occasionally don't recover animals and sometimes we don't even see animals whereas all the other hunting shows out there they, they always get their animal and they always shoot it right in the right spot and well they portray it that way too it's not always the reality yeah yeah no, it's not and i know you know behind the scenes on some of these shows there's been so many massive cock-ups that they don't show and i like to show my cock-ups so i think other people can learn from my mistakes and and, and can relate to those cops as well relates the biggest one i think you know what i mean like i would i think every human learns from their mistakes the the one thing we don't all do is appreciate the value of the mistake you know like the, every every mistake you would have made be it hunting or in whatever form if you've got the ability to look at it as a learning lesson then that's you know there's strength in failure and I think that's an awesome thing. Oh, you're absolutely correct. And I, I didn't know this when I was a younger fella. You know, it's taken me years to start to learn that failure is good and failure can be used to learn. And next time that we do, well, 
hopefully next time we do it, we don't make the same mistakes that some of us do. I'm, I'm a classic example of that. Sometimes <laughs> it takes me a couple of mistakes to learn the lesson. A couple, couple of three, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, you only do that three times. Yeah, oh, but, but you're, you're absolutely correct. That's, that's why God now, gave you ten fingers, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. You can slowly stop chopping them off one by one by one. <laughs> and now that I've got kids, it's, it's great to know that because instead of chastising them for their mistakes and their failures, I can teach them that failure is actually a good thing because – you, need, you don't get good without making mistakes and you don't get good at something without making cock-ups and the best mm. lessons learned are the hardest lessons learned. Mm. Yeah, so I, well, I guess you know now that we've just sort of touched on having kids there, the other thing I see in your social stuff and you know, like you incorporate your kids very well into a rural living um, and I mean, I don't, know, I don't know your kids but I assume they enjoy what they're doing but they, they at least get the opportunity to experience it. I think that's massively important nowadays. It is very important. And I think hunting in general or camping, hunting and camping with kids teaches them a lot of patience. It teaches them persistence and it teaches them to appreciate completing a task. And you can't go to bed until you blow your air mattress up and pitch the tent and jump in your sleeping bag and you can't eat till you've got that fire or the gas connected and all the rest of it. So it's, it's just takes, takes them back to the basics, I guess, and, teaches them good work ethics, persistence and patience. Uh, I like to encourage a lot of other people with children to get out there and take them camping mm. or just to do stuff outdoors and go out and cut some trees down and whittle a spare and light a fire in the backyard. Even if it's in the backyard, you don't have to. Yep. Yeah, you don't adventure you know, far afield. It's only got to be different. That's right, different, yeah. And I, I appreciate how hard it is to get kids out the door. Holy shit, it's a mission yep. to do any kind of mission <laughs> with children. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine thankfully aren't old enough to have any real say in the matter. They just come camping. <laughs> but um, I definitely, it's a, it's a difficult one for me because I've got, I'm probably one of the older ones in my group to now have young kids, if you like. I put it off for as long as I could because I wasn't finished doing my stuff. But, um, you know, I see a lot of mates that have kids, I guess, coming close to high school type age group. And um, they've never been camping and probably never will go other than a school, you know, type scenario based on my friends never camped. Like it's, it's, it's one generation away from not being a regular occurrence. That's how I view camping. And I think that's, that's shocking to think that here in New Zealand we are that close to camping not being the norm. You're absolutely right. And now that freedom camping, I think, has a lot to do with it. Now that they've banned freedom camping, it's a lot harder for New Zealanders to just go out and pull up on the side of a creek or a riverbank somewhere, light a fire, pitch a tent with their family. And I think that is actually putting a lot of people off not doing it. Because mm. they don't want to well, – camping is not the same if you go to a campground or a designated campy area and there's a whole bunch of other tourists there doing the same thing. Well, but it's not quite. <laughs> not really. I mean, there's still plenty <laughs> yeah. of places to freedom camp and I just I, – I turned a blind eye to any signs. I say, oh, that's for tourists. That's not for Kiwis. I think Kiwis yep. – should be encouraged to go out and freedom camp, and I certainly encourage them. Even if it's not, it's not, it's probably against the law in certain areas and districts and locations. But yeah, I just yeah. take a punt, you know, just go up and go up a river or go up a creek or just pull over on the side of the road and light a fire. And if you get told off, you can pull up and move on. If you don't, then you're camping. I fully agree, and I mean, I know there'll be some questions around the the reality of what you've just said and what I agree with, and the fact that I don't think freedom camping should fit for kiwis provided you're tidy and, and you know dig a hole for your excrement and all that you know like be respectful for other kiwis but it we should be we should be encouraged to go and enjoy the environment 
You know, should be. That's right. It's, it's, an, it's a great distraction from everyday life. But having said that, though, I'm fortunate enough to be able to. Oh, there's a phone ringing in the background. I'll just hang ten wait till it stops ringing. There we go. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to live a lifestyle where camping is my job. So I can take my kids camping whenever I want. And I find it hard to find time or to make the time to take my kids camping. So I can appreciate people who live and work in big city environment. It's extremely difficult to, first of all, find somewhere to go camping and then organize the kids and the wife and the gear and all the rest of it and just go out and do it. And I think that's where hunting comes in to its own because every hunter's got camping gear. Uh, they've all they've got sleeping bags and sleeping mats and a tent. They've got the gears, but for your average, regular Joe Bloggs who lives in the city and works a professional career, he probably doesn't have all the camping gear, so he doesn't have the stuff to take his family camping. Whereas if his kids go on a school camp, he just needs to buy them a sleeping bag and they're away. So I don't know mm. what the answer to that is. Yeah, no, you did. You're you're right. Like I think, um, you know, cost is a barrier to entry too. But I think you know, in the form of exactly what you're saying. Like, if you don't have the equipment, when you look at maybe going away for a long weekend and you could book a motel for 500 or buy the camp gear for 1,000, um, it's probably just an easier offset to go, well, bugger it, we'll, we'll go to the hotel, it'll be warm and dry and easier. I mean, that's reality, but it's unfortunately there's, there's far more to it outside than the financial expense, you know, like and there's all that boring adage and the stuff that you've got at them forever and you can go more often and all that sort of stuff, but I think I think what's missing is is for people just to be comfortable with things being a little bit harder. You know what I mean? Like it, it's the easier route is the way we, we keep taking things. Mate, everything is so easy these days. It's the age of instant gratification, isn't it? You push a button and flick a switch and you've got it. And mm. where, there, where there is a will, there's a way. And I guess if that will to go camping is strong enough, people are going to go camping. And I like to think that my productions instill – are willing people to go camping with their mates or go into the great outdoors. And as New Zealanders, we historically, like you said, previous generations have loved camping and we've loved going out with the family and even just mates. And I know in Canada and North America, people still love camping. It's a little bit different over there. They like to go out in the woods and get on the piss and drink yeah, yeah. whiskey and light a big fire and pass out around a campfire. So the camping's a bit different to our New Zealand family style of camping. So, yeah, I think that's where hunting, like I said, is really good because when people go hunting, they go camping. And it's I, I, I can't, it's hard for me because I've always camped. I, I can't put myself in someone's shoes that hasn't been camping very much. I don't know if they'd go that first time and get hooked or addicted to camping, but I'd, I'd like to think that they would if they've never given it a crack. Just the simple the simple task of lighting a fire and boiling water. Everyone likes fire, whether they're a pyromaniac yeah. or not, yeah. sitting around an open fire in the outdoors and the sight and the sound and there's no technology to distract you. It's just you're there in the moment. And if you've got kids, it's a great way to spend time with your kids because it's so easy to just flick off at night and pick up a device and tune out. Well, just find yourself busy. You know, I know I know with the work you're doing now and, and you know, with everything you do now, but the, the social side of it and, you know, like of my job, a lot of it's based on social, like, you can just find yourself busy with really stuff that shouldn't make you busy. And I, I know that's very poor language, but you, you just find yourself doing little tasks and it's just, really, you should just shut it all off work hard for a few hours in the morning and be done with it. But it just seems to be little drips and drabs that drag on for ages. And 
it's just the way life is i think you know especially if you've got a social element to what it is you do it's brutal isn't it it really is Less, there's more, there's less socialising and more socialising, but the socialising comes from a device and not actually socialising with people. It's crazy. The whole yep. world's getting turned on its head. Yeah, I know. I, was, I actually had a conversation last night with a, a young 18-year-old that's looking to do the, the Ultimate OE experience. And um, one of the things I, you know, is a, is a non-negotiable for me is they sit down and have a video interview with me. Um, and I encourage his parents to be there and we actually just actually communicate and ensure they understand everything and and the reason for that is i know how enticing the pictures on my stuff look you know like wow big moose in canada or horseback riding like i want to go i'm like yeah but we've got to take a step back and actually appreciate the reality of it there's going to be snow there's going to be predators there's going to be long days there's going to be time with only one or two people, there's going to be time with no people. You know, there's there's so much more to what the picture shows. So it's important that people actually communicate nowadays. We're losing that art. Yes, we are. I'm, I'm a sucker for emailing. I like to email. I like to have a paper record, especially dealing with anything business. I like to have some kind of paper record. But then again, you can't really nut out the problems as quickly as you as a phone call can. And a lot <laughs> no. of people prefer, you know, a lot of people prefer phone calls. I prefer email because I can think about my response and I can take a bit of time before I respond. Whereas if you're on the phone, then the response is instant. Yeah, yeah, and it comes out. And and for all you know, for all the in, intention in the world, you sometimes you just get it wrong. That's right. I guess you know, like you you grew up. You didn't grow up on the west coast, did you? That was no something that came about later on. In, Grew up in Napier, spent the early years of my life in Napier till I was uh, in my early teens, and then I started to move around the country, different spots here and there, and I've been on the coast for about 20 years. So almost a local? Almost a local, yeah. I've been here full-time for 11 years, 12 years, and yep. the, uh, 10 years before that I was here just in the summertime, just for the rafting and kayaking, and then I'd go overseas, get away from the winter. What, sort of just follow the raft season? Follow the raft season, yeah. I've been rafting since I was... 18, 19, so I just started chasing the endless summer, pretty much working as a raft guide, and I'd spent a bit of time in the autumns over here trapping possums and doing a wee bit of hunting, and then I'd go overseas, and when I got back in the spring, I'd do a little bit odd jobs, firewood and possum trapping, then start rafting over summer, so yeah, it was, it was a great lifestyle. I did that for many a year till I had a couple of kids, and it was just too expensive to travel. That's what led to me basing myself in one particular spot, and I chose the West Coast because it's wild. There's mountains, there's rivers, there's the ocean. It's got a whole lot going for it. There's not many people here. It's very honest and mm-hmm. open. It's a it's a great spot of the country. But the hunting and fishing is second to none. We've got the alpine hunting, the tar and the chamois, the wild West Coast, ocean for miles. There's good free diving. There's good deep sea fishing. There's good surf casting. Don't have the same variety of fish as the far north does, and that's no. another – that I'd, I'd love to live up the far north, but it doesn't have mountains. If they I was going to say, yeah, you got there's a compromise wherever you go. That's right, and I love fishing. I've always loved my fishing more than I have my hunting because I've fished from such an early age, whereas I didn't really start hunting for meat till I was in my mid-teens. But I've always fished ever since I was a young kid. And the far north, is I've spent a couple of weeks every couple of years up there just cruising around fishing and it's just amazing the variety of fish you can catch the amount of fish the abundance of fish 
and the warm, clear waters, it's a lot different than it is down here on the West Coast where you're <laughs> yeah. very limited to what you can catch as far as fishing goes. But there's no mountains up there. There's no alpine hunting, no tar, yeah. no shamming. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So that obviously attracted you there. And then you, you've referenced now a couple of times. So your hunting began for meat. That was, that was sort of why you progressed to big game? Ah, uh, that's why I progressed to big game for meat. Yeah, when we were kids, we used to hunt possums with fox terriers and I was a really keen rabbit hunter. We used to have ferrets and we'd go down and, put the ferrets down the holes and the rabbits would come out and if we didn't get them, the foxes would chase them and they'd very rarely catch the rabbits. But I hunted for meat when I was a kid, rabbit meat. We ate a lot of rabbit meat. Didn't eat possum, wasn't interested in eating possum, but we ate a lot of rabbit meat coming from a, a, a single parent, single mother family. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we did as much as we could. The Budget dictated, yep. the, yeah. The protein and, and we loved it. We loved rabbit hunting and we would have been deer hunters from a very early age if we had the opportunity but we grew up in Napier so there was no deer on the outskirts of Napier back in the day there was only possums rats and rabbits so we hunted what we could and the deer hunting came when I was 14 15 and and living in National Park and there was deer in the area so I could go out and hunt deer there and borrow a mate's gun and sneak around in the bush and yeah that's that's I guess that's where the, the big game hunting came from and then when I shot my first deer I couldn't get over how much meat there was it was just meat everywhere and meat's expensive. <laughs> Everyone can yeah. appreciate how expensive meat is. Holy shit. And, you know, you put an animal on the ground, all of a sudden you found this this new – well, equally, there's two parts to this. You put an animal on the ground, and all of a sudden you now have access to the cuts of meat that you weren't typically privy to, i.e. the fillets and, all you know, all those really good soft bits. But then you actually – what I like now about hunting, and I think there's a big shift a- across – you know the America side of things, and using the poorer cuts like slow cooked and on fires and so forth, and and actually, like they become amazing cuts of meat. You know, and and part of it's the sweat and the slog you've put into it. Part of it's you know the environment in which you have it. But I, I, the the reward value or the yeah the reward value on your meat is massive one if you've harvested it i don't know it's, you can't compare it you can't compare it you're right there and I'm, i've just started to try and use more and more of the animal because back in the day the whole animal was used and i think it's a lot healthier for people to eat the whole animal to eat the offal and the brains and i don't know anyone that eats brains Does, no you know anyone that eats brains? <laughs> no and it uh, won't be me i could tell you that i, oh, I, I get the so idea delicious. of it i get the idea of it but um there's something about that, like you know, I've I've eaten awful, but I just struggle with it, and it's only a mental thing. It's got nothing to do with flavour or anything like that. What about the heart? Do you eat the heart from the animals? You should uh, have have, but I don't typically. You know what I mean? Like it's not a it's coming at home type item. Um, yeah, see the heart. I mean, my my, my opinion, I that the heart's my favourite part of the animal. A, a deer heart delicious just like a steak and a lot of people who i serve heart to have never eaten it before and they're real surprised at how mm. delicious and how tender it is and that you know, hardly anyone out there eats liver it's so high in iron and so good for you. the brains are good for you the bone marrow so i've just started to try and eat more of the animal i still don't like mm. kidneys i still think kidneys taste like piss i'll eat them in a steak and kidney well pie. they're a filter aren't they <laughs> oh mate i love a pussy old steak and kidney pie don't get me wrong put a mushrooms in there and i think the taste of the kidney Makes the mushrooms taste better, but I, I've started to freeze shins whole, the animal shin, you know, the foreleg yeah, and the, and the yeah, shins yeah. on the real leg of a, of a deer, freeze them whole and then cut them with a bandsaw or a just a normal handsaw. 
yeah. into cross sections and then make that into stew and you get the marrow inside the bone and oh, it's great. And I've only just started yeah. to do this recently because when I first started hunting, and I think a lot of other people can relate to this, I just took the prime cuts. I took the back steaks, the, the back legs and anything front shoulder, I just chop up to the dog food or that would just go into stew and I wouldn't yeah. really get creative with my meat. But it comes back to this whole social media, social media and awareness. There's so many cooking channels out there. Steve Rinelli, you know, he does a great job yeah, cooking the animals. And there's and there's the, the pit masters and the barbecue boys, and there's all these different ways to harvest all the different bits of an animal. And I recently, just a couple of days ago, saw a a video on how someone prepared the flank of the animal and oh, yeah. pounded it flat and then rolled it up and stuffed it in. Barbecued it, man. That shit looked delicious. So I'm yeah. going to go out shoot a deer this week just so I can prepare. <laughs> just to have a go at that. Yeah, well, I've I'm started not chop his flank off and kick the rest of the animal. <laughs> I harvest as much as I can, but I'll definitely will be using Make that sure flank that as well as previously. That was just dog tucker. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, I you do use the flanks off the um, the wild pigs, and I roll them around the loins. Um, so I do use that, but on on them, but I don't on the deer. But I I've started. I put in an outdoor fire just for having a beer around essentially and cooking on. Um, and I've started, again, a little bit more like the Steve Rinella type approach and and putting poorer cuts in like the crock pot or slow cooker for a few hours, having them sort of cooked through real juicy and then glazing them up and chucking them on the fire so they get that that burnt, crispy sweetness, I guess is what, you know, and, and geez, <laughs> it's, it's good. I'm not going to lie, it's it's good. I don't know how healthy it is for you. You've got to go walk an extra bit further the next day, but it's good, real good. Shit, that's a good idea. I didn't think of slow cooking it and then finishing it off on the open fire. Well, you know, because then you can then you don't have to worry so much about how well things are actually cooking versus you know getting that charcoal look. You're basically yep. just getting that finish on them, and it goes real good. That's um, bloody great. I guess it comes back to that camping and the ambience and the sights and sounds and the smells of sitting around a fire with your mates cooking shit and. All the phones go in the phone basket, and people actually talk to each other. That's a bloody great idea, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the one—it's the that appreciation of time again. You know, we live in this world where we get home hungry and really want something. There's a, typically something in a packet we can eat, or something we can put in a microwave and eat. Whereas, like you're sort of saying with the kids, and you know, having to achieve little goals before you can go to bed. When you light a fire, then have to get whatever it is to the boil and whatever it is to a cook state, you know, so it's safe to eat, it all takes time. And then the only other thing to do in that sort of environment is to communicate, which are, these are the very things we started the conversation with. So, Josh, so going from humble beginnings, finding yourself on the West Coast, you know, into the meat hunting, how did you get to Josh James, the Kiwi Bushman? Like, and the, and the reason, I, and to give you some context on that question... I remember when it sort of started because um, it was back in the days when I guess there was there was talk of the big game hunting stuff with Ben and you know that sort of window was all coming about. You were kind of breaking trends really, especially for Kiwis, you know, um, to start playing the social game if you like. So how did that come about? <laughs> well, it all kind of happened at the same time, which was unfortunate. Because it was big game hunting with Ben Tumata, then the Hunters Club came out and NZ Hunter Adventures at the same time, and uh, who else was there? The Maori Television started bringing out Hunting Altaira, so it kind of all happened at the same time. And 
the reason that all came about was I, we almost went bankrupt. So the rafting wasn't doing too well. We had a couple of really bad summers for tourism. Yep. And then I injured my hand quite badly and ACC gave me about half of the money they said they were going to. I needed two-stage reconstructive surgery. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> we pretty much got in the shit. Our first ACC payment came in and I was like, what the heck? And this isn't it. the money they said they were going to pay us. And so I was screwed. By this time, I was six months off work for a two-stage reconstructive surgery on my hand. Mm. So we basically called James Scott and said, look, we can't pay you the money we owe you. We're in a bit of shit here. Can you give us some time? And he just said, no worries. Take all the time you need. I won't charge you interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was great. So we were arguing a lot. There was a lot of negativity going on. And we just thought we'd focus on the positives and dig our way out of the shit. I'm quite goal orientated. I've always been a firm believer in setting goals and breaking the goals down into little steps and mm-hmm. taking those little steps to achieve the goal or the bigger picture. I guess that comes from working as a salesman when I was a teenager. I was lucky enough to be taught that back then so we wrote all the positives down and there was a whole bunch of different shit I could do I could work as a digger driver I'd go work in the mines in Australia we could go bankrupt and lose the house and business and I could go back to travelling around the world rafting dragging my family around with me could move to the far north go on the dole and go catch snapper off the beach and <laughs> so there was all these positives yep. you know there was all of these things come out of it and around about the time we were doing that I made a, the video called the possum whisperer which was a video of me possum trapping and <laughs> that the wisp, the sleepy stick. That's yeah, that's yeah, right. That, yeah. Video, that kind of set it off because I've always been into photography and taking photos and kicking around with the video camera, but I've always just slapped on on my computer and put music to it. And I taught myself how to use an editing suite when I started the rafting company because I needed to make rafting videos to put on the on the website and whatnot, and I couldn't afford to pay someone, so I taught myself how to do it. So I already knew the basics of video editing, and I'd never been in front of the camera. So when I filmed myself up in the bush, that kind of kick-started, I guess, my character and put it on screen because I was in front of the camera and I didn't have someone putting a camera on me. I was holding the camera, and that got so many good reviews on social media or Facebook, and I think I posted it on the... Hunt and Fish Forum, the NZ Hunt and Fish mm-hmm. Forum, which is, was a really great Kickstarter to my career. Um, really appreciate that, that, that forum and what it, what it did for me back in the early days. And then I thought, hey, maybe I can get my own hunting show on TV because that's what Matt Watson did, right, with the ideal yep. fishing show. He just started filming with a handicam, him and his mates, and then a television station up. said, yeah, sure, we'll pay you. And, and so that's the track I was going down and turned out that television wasn't really interested because – they said, oh, no one's going to watch hunting. No one's really into hunting, which hasn't been the case because you've got those other hunting shows now, NZ Hunter and, you know, Hunting Otara and uh, the Red Stag Timber Hunters Club. So they're, they're all on TV, mainstream television. But it's actually worked out better because now I can just do what I want. I'm not governed by any television guidelines yeah. and I can make them rough as guts and I can make sure. Well, you can make them real. I don't know. Rough as, rough as guts, you know, like I know that's a tongue-in-cheap descriptive, but, you know, like you make them real. And I think there's, you know, real value in that. I had a discussion with Joe Edlington, you know, a couple of podcasts back and he's, you know, sort of in that professional cameraman type genre. And I said, but there's, there's nothing quite like when you dig out some of your own videos, which – we're on handicam and you know there was there was nothing there was no mindset about how good the shot's going to look or you know are people going to appreciate this one or not like it was it was purely about 
your straight out passion and what you were doing and you can't replicate that like it's that like the, the shows that come out nowadays don't I'm not taken away from them because they're high quality and they are really good shows but I don't think that ever replicates the raw passion of being on the job when you do that whatever, whatever it is you're doing I don't think that ever gets replicated well other than authentic video that's my version uh, yeah I guess I guess you're kind of right and I do try to put that raw rough as guts real to life stuff in there but I try to shoot it well as well and I've, I'm not a, I don't have a great passion for my photography because I've been doing it for so long ever since I was a young teenager so I've kind of lost that zeal for camera work and camera settings and I just put on autofocus and automatic and point and shoot I try to get my composition and my framing right and the lighting and all the rest of it but Joey Joey Linton you know he's a fantastic cameraman and same with that Cam Henderson from the Hunter's yep. Journal and Dave Shaw and all those other guys that they're very very skilled and very passionate about the camera work whereas something is I lack in that department mm. slightly. Mm. Uh, that'll, that'll come around. And I have been trying to get a lot better and a lot more critical of my camera work in my latest productions. But it's only a matter of time before I do get someone who's very passionate about the photography. So I do try to make my camera work good as well. But but you're right. I try to put that realism in there and, and have that point of view stuff. And it's hard. It's hard to do because it's hard to get everything done and film it at the same time. It, it's... It, takes a lot of effort and my mates often get pissed off because I say oh could you just do that again oh could you pick that up I'll put that down oh I wasn't really I wasn't rolling sorry the audio is wrong we'll just do it again oh could you just walk back up there and walk back down again to me whoa, 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 whoa. You know, don't shoot it and that's yeah. why I spend so much time sneaking in an animal and then your mate goes bang and I was like dear I wasn't ready or you know I wasn't yeah. focused yet and like hurry up it's going to go away I can't focus and fucking camera and I'm like twiddling around and but hunting videos are extremely hard to make because you put all this time and effort into the stalk and all the rest of it, and then the animals don't play ball. And everyone likes to see a kill shot. You know, all yeah. animal hunters do. Well, that's watch his hunting productions, and it's so hard to get sometimes. Yeah, no, hundred percent, exactly. But then, so you, you, you know, you became, I guess, known, or you know, your your brand got out there, and then you got invited. Did you audition for those Discovery Channel shows, or were they just straight invites? Or how did that, how did that then sort of come about? Because that was sort of the next big stage, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a stroke of luck, actually. Unfortunately, the Kings of the Wild, which I did six episodes of, didn't get a second season. It was mainly aired in Southeast Asia and Latin America. Uh, so they came about. The Discovery Channel contacted me. They have talent scouts scouring the web, looking for new talent and. They contacted me, and I actually auditioned for that show. We filmed it in Panama. They flew me to Panama. They rang me up on a Friday night. I was at the pub on the lash, actually, and <laughs> they said, can you jump on the plane Monday and get over to Panama? And I said, well, who is this? We'll start. Oh, sorry, sorry. And so, uh, yeah, so they, we had a Skype. I said, no, I can't. My passport's expired. So I had a Skype interview on Monday, and then we got a passport rushed through, and I went over to Panama, and I was auditioning against a couple of other survival experts, and I've never really considered myself to be a survival expert. I'm just a regular hunter, fisher mm-hmm. bloke from New Zealand. And it turns out that your general Kiwi hunter, fisher bloke knows quite a bit about survival, especially if they spend a lot of time in the mountains here because our mountains are quite dangerous and quite harsh. And I have been interested in survival and bushcrafts since I was a kid, so I had a basic knowledge, but 
Uh, yeah, so so that was a stroke of luck that I picked up the Discovery Channel work. It didn't really increase my YouTube views or my YouTube subscribers, unfortunately, because they don't do a great job of... I guess cross-branding. Yeah. yeah, cross-branding. There's no cross-branding whatsoever, so it's just up to the viewer to, to Google Josh James and, and find me that way. And I'm actually headed to China with the Discovery Channel in another month to do a, a, single, a single episode. It's, a, it's an adventure survival race, and I've been training for that. I've been running. I hate running. Oof. I love running, actually. I used to hate running, but running, I actually quite enjoy it now. Yeah, right. I used to hate it. I used to hate running, and I, you know, I'd only exercise climbing mountains and shooting animals at the top of the hill, but I've been running for a few days now, and I'm getting back into it. So what? So you're actually doing an adventure race? Yeah, it's an, I can't really say. I'm not even supposed to say anything about it. No, right. Oh, it's, well. just a, it's, a, it's an adventure race. It's a face-off. You'll see, you'll see it'll come out in another couple of months, I guess. Yeah. Then. Awesome. I'll be able to tell people so have like nothing to do with that then. So how far are you running? I don't bloody know. All right. Oh, how far? Oh, how far no. am I running? Yeah, like now. Day to day. I don't know. I haven't actually figured out how many kilometres it is. I, I, I don't. I guess I take my phone. Can you GPS off a phone? You probably can. You I probably can. I don't, I'm not yeah, big it's on not that a stuff. Long way. It's only say a couple of k. Start off yeah. with a couple of k, then I'll probably expand that out to maybe 10k 10k in a day 10k a day that's the plan in another couple of weeks and yeah it's good I've been you know, doing press ups and pull ups and get fit again. And holy, you'll be yeah, deadly. Next raw, you'll be deadly. deadly. <laughs> well, mate, you've got to have that fitness for hunting. And I'm actually just off the back of knee surgery, so that's one of the reasons for for running is to get that knee fit again and to get my fitness levels back up to what they were when I was in my early twenties. And I've always been relatively fit. And I've always had no problem charging up the hill carrying heavy packs and tar hunting, but i found that the fitter a person is, the more fun it is. And my mate Sam Harris, oh. who features in a lot of my videos, that guy is a machine. He's small, he's light, his thighs are massive. He's got these massive quad muscles, and he just charges up the hill. He'll put a 20kg pack on and literally run up the mountainside. So hunting with Sam is fun, but it's not that much fun because he's just <laughs> yeah. so fit. And I've got a lot of mates who I hunt with that, have a lower fitness level than I have, and I really appreciate false sense of security them because I'm like, oh my goodness, you yeah. know, yeah, these guys are really unfit. I'm a machine, but you know, when I go hunting with Sam, it's very humbling, and I, I want to be right up there with his fitness level. So yeah, you know, I'm at the top I'm of my kinda, game pretty much. I'm kind of going through that. I don't, I'd hate to call it a midlife crisis too, but I'm back at the gym now. My, basically, my surgeons told me that I should line up for surgery number three on my back. And I've told him that that's not happening. So I'm down to my last devices of just trying to, I guess, push through it and hope that my body finds its next happy medium, if you like. So um, I think it will for sure. I think that's a huge problem in today's medical profession is that they take an example of your generic bloke or woman and then they base their base their prognosis off someone else. Not you know, it doesn't cater yep. to a personal individual to, to a person to an yeah an individual's personal level of fitness mm. they just take it as from a generic standpoint yeah. of view oh, oh no your blood pressure is fine for a, for a 45 year old no you're doing great well i actually want to do more than great you know I don't yeah be judged yep. against some fat balding person who works in an office that doesn't do any running i want to be judged against someone who's my age who's at the top of their fitness level you know peak performance so, so it's and i think the human body can heal itself, and it, and it can really it's 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 an, an well, amazing I, machine, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I think there's a little. This is going to head down a different rabbit hole, but I think guys that hunt from a young age and hunt in the the mountains, you know, and you you gain a mental toughness. Um, and I was talking to Matthew, my business partner, yesterday about we've got an upcoming hunt in Canada. Um, we're doing a sheep, moose, caribou backpack hunt. And I sort of said to him, I said, oh, look, I'm actually going to forego a little bit of the cardio just to really work on my core and my back and stuff. 
He said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, you know, I've done a hill climb with you and your mental toughness is going to, you'll cover that part. Don't worry about it, you know. And I, that was the first time I heard somebody out, say it out loud. Like, and it's it's actually a true attribute of hunters, you know. Like, I, I'm not condoning it over being fit, but our mental toughness will see us through difficulty. Um, Mate, it goes an extremely long way. My knee, I've always been a firm believer, and oh, it doesn't matter. You know, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. I'll get back on my feet. I've broken my back in five places previously. I spent six months in the Burl Spiner Unit in Christchurch when I was in my early 20s. So I've had some pretty horrendous injuries, and I'm fit and strong as a horse. And my knee's a classic example. I should just be starting physio now and getting it working again and, you know, stretching You're already doing runs. But I'm I'm already running, and I've been tar hunting a couple of weeks ago. I was pretty much back on my feet after three weeks and they said recovery was going to take a couple of months and I, I knew that I'd be back on my feet and I'd heal a lot quicker than they said I was going to and I think because of that mental toughness and that mental fortitude, it's actually aided my healing. Well, no, one, of my, one of my good friends in Canada and he's actually one of the outfitters I work with a lot, he's been attacked by a grizzly bear and he's had several plane crashes and, you know, real next level sort of injuries. And one of the things he spoke to me last time I caught up with him over in the States was after a second plane crash and more back surgeries and reconstructions and all this sort of stuff, he sort of said, the only medical expert that actually got me past this was somebody that come in and taught me to just use my mind to forget about the pain. He said, I'm in pain all the time. He said, there was no point in trying to avoid that. It was about shifting the pain off site, if, if that makes sense. And um, when, it, when it was just another bloke telling me this stuff, far out it sunk in. It really sunk in. Like it wasn't a, a lecture. It wasn't somebody, like you say, highly educated that sits in an office and is going to tell me that, you know, I can shift my pain. This is a guy that's living it every day. And I was like, fuck, you can. You know, like and it, it, it sunk in big time. It's all relative, isn't it? You know, it, his pain might be pretty small compared to someone else's pain. And yet his pain might be immensely excruciating compared to someone else's yeah. pain. So you've just got to put it into perspective and get back on that horse and keep bloody riding. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. But uh, one of the topics I wanted to touch with you, Josh, because like, there's obviously a lot of big issues going around New Zealand, but then also hunting and so forth at the moment. And you know, pick, we could basically pick any of them. But one of the ones that I've seen you vocal about in the past is 1080. You know, and I assume you're right to talk about that for a little bit. Oh, mate. Don't get me started on 1080. <laughs> no, well, because one... We'll, 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 t- we'll briefly touch base on the subject, shall we? Yeah, because... The, and the, I'll give you some, again, more context on why I wanted to talk to you about this. Because I, I have talked to people, I guess, that are very pro and very against, you know, um, 1080. And I've actually found, I guess, truth and common ground to everybody. I definitely am not educated in the form. I don't like the idea that we drop poisons, but I don't have a better alternative. Like, I don't know where I sit. But then last night or a couple of nights ago when I was thinking about having this conversation with you, I was like, the one big difference with my conversation with you is that you live in an area that is actively 1080, like as in your water catchment, I'm assuming here, that your water catchment is affected in 1080. And you were living there with your family and kids. And see, when as soon as I said that in my head, I was like, well, despite how I feel about 1080, there's no way I'd want to sit there in an environment and have my kids drink water out of the tap that a poison was deliberately dropped in. And, and, and I'm not talking about whether it worked well for animals or it did this versus our predators for this versus our native birds. I'm talking about the straight-out act that a poison was dropped into a water catchment that my little kids are reliant on for life. And that that was the first time I was like, actually, then that starts becoming an adamant, no, it's not good enough for me. So what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Sorry, I did in my head. Uh, it was a lot softer. A, yeah. a small town has a very, very high rate of cancer. No one knows why. So many people in the town where I live are dying of cancer, and in the, the neighbouring towns north and south of where we live, and they've been dropping Canadian here for over thirty years. They've ramped it up in the last 10 years, and I, I don't know if that 1080's got anything to do with it, but it is extremely worrying that, that they do drop 1080, if not now water catchment, which they had before. Last drop, was they excluded the water catchment, but they still did the ridge lines around the water catchment. And an animal, when it gets sick, it goes downhill and it goes to water. So any animals on those ridge lines are going to go straight downhill to the water source, and then they're going to die in the creek or they're going to die not far from the creek and they're going to leach that contaminant into the waterways for up to seven years because 1080 can remain in an animal's bone marrow for up to seven years. So it is, it's a huge worry for me. Not only that, in that regard, you know, I'm a little bit biased because I am a hunter and I don't like the 1080 killing all the deer because then I can't shoot the deer and I love shooting deer. So I'm probably not the best for I'm not on defence. You know, I'm firmly, well and truly, Feet planted on the ground, I hate 1080 and I hate what it does. Uh, but I've also seen firsthand with my rafting over the years, every single summer we do a lot of multi-day trips into areas that have been 1080. Now, a lot of hunters won't go regularly into an area that has been 1080 every year because there's just no animals left in there. What's the point of going back in there? But I've had the advantage of running these multi-day rafting expeditions and going into these areas that have been continually tenated year after year after year. And Doc pump out all of this false propaganda. It really drives me nuts how they do this. One classic example is the Landsborough River. I've been going in there rafting for over 22 years every year. Uh, a couple of times it's been every second year, but I go in there three or four times over the, um, the rafting season, run these multi-day trips, and the bird life has drastically declined in the Landsborough catchment. And yet Doc say that it's doubled over the 20 years that they've been poisoning in there, which is a complete load of utter bullshit, and it's misleading the public, and I don't know how they can get away with that. I do agree that 1080 has a I'm an opinionated bastard, so I'm going to give you my 10 cents. That's right, that's right, man. <laughs> and that, but that's what, that's what this is. It's only your view. It's only it's, my view, that's yep, right. And, and yep. everyone has lots of different views, and I see 1080 working in some areas of the country, and I see it not working in other areas, and I don't know why that is, and Doc are not putting enough scientific studies into why it's working in some areas and why it isn't working in other areas. Now, this past raw, just been, I did quite a bit of hunting up in Kaikoura on private land that has never been 1080 and the bird life was astounding. There was birds everywhere. We could hear birds all day. The dawn chorus was deafening. The birds in the evening just before dark, it was, it was amazing. It really was amazing. And I had a bit of an epiphany. I thought maybe, I don't know if this is true or not, or if this is the case, maybe the pigs eat the rat nests because in Kaikoura there's a lot of pigs. So this private land where I was hunting, there was a lot of pigs, there was possums, there was a lot of bird life and a lot of deer. There wasn't many rats. We were staying in this little hut right on the top of the hill. No rats, no rat shit. No, they didn't have to do rat. Well, there was a little bit of, a few rat traps in the hut, no rat poison, but they never caught rats. So it got me thinking maybe the pigs eat the rat nests. And the thing that drives me nuts is Doc aren't putting enough scientific study into why it's not working in some areas and why it is working so well on others. They're just focusing on the positive, not on the negative. And we've been mm. using it for years and years and years, and our bird life is still on a drastic decline. 1080 does cause rat plagues. Rat plagues, that's, that's been proven. I've also worked as a possum monitor, monitoring pre and after 1080 drops, pre and post. And that is, you know, I've, I've seen the evidence firsthand on why 1080 isn't working and I don't know why it is working in some areas but uh, yes I think they're onto it with this landlocked idea you know where they're like islands that's right landlocked yeah. islands or they just throw everything they've got at 
one particular catchment in a certain region and leave everything else to the dogs. But I don't know what's the answer. I don't know what the answer is. And a lot of people say, well, 1080 is the best tool we've got, but it's bloody not. I think ground control and trapping is the best tool we've got. These good nature traps, fantastic. But therein lies a problem. New Zealand's such a vast and remote country and it is so steep out there and so rugged that it's not feasible to... Well, that, that, that and, you know, like it's, it's, it's an easy default for us to talk about how hard the land is and that's true and accurate. But the real reality comes down to you know the, the cost breakdown and I, you know for me like if you just talk pure business didn't have any emotion in it is there another tool that is as cost effective as in would guys still go out for days if it meant a handful of possums or you know so therefore then they need to be on wages not you know not sort of a per animal cost or per animal profit sorry yeah, and that's then, not then, work, you know, you know not, yeah not, not enough integrity in this modern day and age to pay someone a wage and trust that they're going to do their job exactly right the you know possum. and that's that's where we you know, like like I say, if you took the pure emotion out of it, like is there a business model there that would work in today's day and age with the people that are there to do the work? I don't know. It's not like well, there's not, there's, it's not there, like it a work. reinvention it of the wouldn't. rabbiters or anything like that because it's a very different climate. It's a very different – yep, that's right. People are lazier. But having said that, the business model isn't working because it's just too expensive to drop 1080 consecutively. And the only way 1080 works effectively is if you drop it consecutively year after year after year or at the very least give it a two-year break before you drop it again. Because in between the drops, you know, they drop it here five to ten years later, they'll come back and they'll drop it again then they'll go do some area, then they'll come back and do it again because it's not, it's too expensive, right? All this helicopter drops, it's too expensive for them to do the whole country year after year after year, which is what needs to be done to get it to work because it's the only way they're going to get rid of the rats. The problem is it's not working the way that they're currently using it. So something needs to be done to look at alternative methods of poisoning, whether they keep using 1080 but focus, you know, concentrate efforts on certain – I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, yeah. but it's not working. It, our birds are still on a decline. The care are almost extinct. The rat populations are out of control in all of our beach forests. Still, even the areas that have been 1080 every couple of years, the rat populations are still out of control. So it's a vicious circle. It's mm. just not bloody working. Yeah, I actually, I actually spoke to a guy. I won't reference his name, but he's um, sort of in the fish and game sort of genre, and he trained a lot of the dogs to do bird surveys pre and post 1080 drops. And you know, I, I managed to quiz him up in honesty, but obviously in private too you know, around what it is he had seen. And his, I guess, educated viewpoint was, especially around the care, where in some drops you basically kill the majority and then in some you won't even really touch them. And he said the only evidence he could relate together was the kias were most affected where there was already human interaction so where they were used to picking wiper blades or picking up chip packets or people off the side of the road and all that sort of stuff, they were hit really hard with the poison. Like like the barrier to entry had already been broken down in terms of their inquisitiveness. And and where where it was really remote and there wasn't a lot of people interaction, or I guess not even people, but you know, artificial interaction compared to their life, their kill rates were very low. So uh, it, it was interesting to hear that. Again, I don't know what it adds to the argument for and against, but it was interesting to hear that, you know, and it's it's a tough one because, you know, I know the, the people that are against it, they'll only reference the figures that, have high kills and then the people that are pro will only reference the figures that have low kills and the, the thing i think the resounding thing depend like regardless of who you talk to is the amount of science research that's going into this and continues to go into us i think that's the biggest weakness we've got with 1080 at the moment 
my I think you're right there because you can do a scientific study on the on the advantages of anything. If you don't do a scientific on, on the disadvantage, then was biased. It was biased. That's right. So, right. So Doc only they they published this positive scientific results. Uh, as, for example, you could do a scientific study on the advantages and the benefits of drinking red wine, but the negatives far outweigh the positives. Yeah, well, it's and, only people selling the wine that are going to encourage and promote the result. Exactly. So they'll, they'll do a, <laughs> yeah. a scientific yeah. study into the benefits of drinking red wine. Oh, it's good yeah. for you. It's full of antioxidants. Uh, it's good it, for the eat heart. Eat it with chocolate. The, the, <laughs> oh, chocolate, yeah, yeah, another classic example, right? So, And that's what Doc's doing in regards to this 1080 saga. So it's, it's they need someone who's not biased, someone from overseas that doesn't know anything about what's going on over here, a scientist, to come in and do a study into the positives and the negatives. And these, yeah, that's what needs to happen, but it, it's not going to happen because there's this huge gravy train and there's far too much money invested in it and people are making a lot of money off all the poison contractors. Man, that is big bucks. The Animal Health Board, or Osprey as they're now called, it's big money, big money involved. Okay, we'll skip off that topic. There's no no point in losing more sleep over it. Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? Well, in part, but... Oh fuck! Now I'm going back down the rabbit hole. But that's why that's why my conversation started with the fact that it actually is in the water that drinks your kid that your kids drink. You know, for me that that removed any ignorance. If, if you know what I mean, because I like sitting here in Alexandria, like we've had teen eighty in the past around us, but you know, back in the days when there weren't many deer anyway, and it was really targeted at rabbits, and you know now there's a little bit over the luggage way at that, but it hasn't sunk in if you if that if you know what I mean. Whereas that's right, it's not right. It's not on your back doorstep. No, it? it's not. Every time you turn the faucet on in your house, you're potentially opening up a, a toxin. You know, that's and right. Yeah, but that, beginning of winter, we could see the helicopters dropping it out our kitchen window. We could see the helicopters dropping 1080 from our kitchen. Window. Yeah. See, so that Crazy. that's that's a very different understanding. But anyway, so okay, switch topic. So we, what's next for Josh James? I, don't, I, don't I know, really but we know. can't a talk few about. People them. have asked me this question. I'd like to just keep chipping along the way I am. I'd like to get a lot more people on my pay-per-view site, so I was making even more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, the grass is always green. I just want to get to that green grass on the other side of the fence. Now that I'm in my nice green grassy paddock, I can just see another green grassy paddock on the other side of the next fence. So I kind of want to hop into that paddock and eat some of that grass. Yep. But what? I'll just keep ch- to keep chipping away like I am. I'd like to get my own television show on a major network and make some real money. I mean, this is great. I'm doing well. I'm paying the bills. Just managing to pay the bills. Uh, I've got toys, I've got boats, and I can put gas in my truck and put food on the table for my family, but you know what us humans like, the grass is always greener, and I've got three boys, and they're going to be teenagers soon, and I live in a very small house, and I need a bigger house. I don't need a bigger house, I'd like a bigger house, I'd like a bigger shed, so I'm just going to keep chipping away, doing what I'm doing, and slowly reaching more people, and yeah, see mm-hmm. what happens. No, awesome. So, the- how, do, how have you, here's another question then, so with like the reference to toys, and I don't need I don't need any information you don't want to share, but have you found, I guess, Kiwi companies and, and products, and I guess, suppliers or anything like that have you found them supportive you know like are they on board if that makes sense uh, no they're very reluctant <laughs> very reluctant to put their money where their mouth is so they 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 love giving out free shit uh, but but no one's no one's shout out any money yet and i know that the the television the hunting shows currently on new zealand television they do get money from all of these brands and suppliers but as of yet i'm i haven't seen a cent out of them and i'm just about to turn the screw actually and, and say right you guys need to start giving me a little bit of money to push mm. your product. Uh, but, yeah, they are very reluctant 
to shell out. And I have had offers from overseas companies and offers from New Zealand companies as well that I've turned down because the product is substandard or it's it's an untrusted brand. You know, we don't know much that's new on the market, relatively new. So I am very wary that I don't push brands that aren't reliable. But yeah, they're very hard to work with because New Zealand is a very small market. It's not like in the States where it's a massive, massive market. New Zealand is very small. So there's not a huge amount of turnover well, we're small, for a start. We're small as, a, as a, an entire country, but then we're small as a, as a demographic if you talk about hunters or fishermen too. And then then we're even small in our dilution. And where I go with this is like, I've got a, whatever, five and a half metre stabby craft. So that means basically three or four of my good mates don't need a five and a half meter stabbycraft, <laughs> you know, and, and and that's sort of you know you start, I guess you got sponsors from boats and so forth, but how many of your viewers buy the boat versus how many you know, and I, I like I get it, but it's just it makes it tough for the likes of you guys because you know essentially you're using a model that you see I guess work in America and so forth like that. That's right, but it's a very tough one to track because there's. You, you can't actually track what the return is for the sponsors mm. in, in relation to me pushing their product out there. I know that the the boat sponsor, he, he's working quite well. He's actually building me a bigger boat at the moment, which is great. There's mm. always a bigger boat out there, isn't there? That's a problem. <laughs> there's there's but, a uh, bigger so, everything. So he's, he's very honest with me. Jason from DNA Boats, he's fantastic. He says, oh, yeah, mate, this has been a lifesaver for my company. He's been he's been really brutally honest. And so from his from his reports, I know that, that my influence is working. And, and the yep. other thing is, New Zealand hunter and fisher, New Zealand hunters and fishers spend a ridiculous amount of money on gear. We do. We are so passionate about our shit. We go out and it's and it's always justified. I needed that new jacket. I needed that new fishing rod. Yeah. I needed that new <laughs> what you could have worn that old PVC rod. Oh no, not like performance doesn't gear. look I the part. It, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And I, it performs. I need these nice, new, comfortable boots. So I know that we are very passionate. I mean, I I get a lot of free. Shit, and I still spend a ridiculous amount of money on hunting and fishing gear that I don't need to, but I just talk myself into it. No, no, it's definitely, and it's it's um, what's well, it's part of keeping up with the Joneses too. You know, you see all this fashionable gear come out, and and really, if you look back at it, we were doing the same things in flannel shirts and swan dries and straight leather boots. You know that, you know, Kiwis have always done it that way. Um, and don't get me wrong, like some of this new gear is is amazing gear to wear. And definitely does have some benefits, but it cracks me up when you see, I guess, guys shooting deer off the back of Lucian paddocks in a complete coup cap. <laughs> like, Jesus, that's a mix, but whatever, you know. Deck down to the nines, <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's actually this, this whole Kiwi Bushman brand making videos, people giving me free shit has been a little bit rough. I was always happy wearing my old Ashley gumboots yep. and a swan dry out hunting in a PVC raincoat, and I didn't know any different. Then all of a sudden, I started getting this flash new technical gear and holy shit it certainly makes hunting a lot more comfortable you want lightweight stuff you know you want heaps of gear it's got to be super lightweight so you can carry more and it's got to perform well and I had no idea that you could get gear like that now that I do I can't really see myself going back tar hunting and lace up Ashley gumboots and a swan dry again because it's slippery it's uncomfortable (laughs) <laughs> doesn't give you any kind of support and, you, and it's heavy you know? exactly that's what the thing i found with with my transition to boots because i used to wear ashley's as well is then i started wearing good sort of three-quarter shank type boots and then you go back to wearing ashley's and my my ankles are no longer designed to wear ashley's on the hill for sure oh, <laughs> like brutal, like yeah everyone's working so much harder it's gonna roll and twist yeah. yeah i hear i still wear my ashley's almost every day and i love hunting the river flats in them but there's no way i'd go alpine hunting in them anymore no yeah. way no no but uh but that's cool well i'm glad i'm glad it's going good and uh, you know certainly wish you all the luck with the next green paddock 
in whatever form that is, you know. I think I think well, I might have to go back into the brown paddock over the fence. Here, but I don't know. It's, that, that may happen too. Well, there's no, gardening in the old paddock. There's nothing wrong with that, though. That's right. There's nothing wrong with that. And even the poorest of the poor in New Zealand live like kings compared to some other people in some other parts of the world. And I think it it, it does. It pays to remember that every now and then again. If you lose everything, you can always go back to scratch. And the government gives you money. What the hell? You can go to the government over and they give you money. Well, they do. I, I, I disagree with some of that stuff. But the um, the th- the real important thing, and I think, and this is where you're actually alluding to, is is the most important thing is to value the right stuff. So your grass mightn't look as green as somebody else's, if we go back to the sheep paddock reference. But it doesn't really matter, you know, as long as it's warm and dry and you you love the people that are closest to you and all that sort of stuff. Like, that stuff matters. Mate, you bang like, on the money, like, yeah. Like, other shit is actually irrelevant. But anyways. It's just, it's just detail, isn't it? Yeah. All that other shit, yep. As long as you've got your, your basic needs and wants, people should be happy. And a passion. That's, I don't know how we've got onto this whole meaning of life conversation, but people need a passion, and I think that's the biggest failing in some people is they don't have a passion. I don't really care what that passion is. For me, obviously, it's hunting, but I don't like I don't care what the passion is. But you need one, and go and find whatever your one is. Don't sit there wondering what your next why is, because it's a hard one. There's so much shit to do in this day and age, isn't there? Yeah, and I'm impatient. I I get real passionate about one thing, then I move on to something else. <laughs> I guess that's where hunting and fishing is a constant. I've always been passionate about hunting and fishing, and I always will be, hopefully. But I don't know. Well, it'll probably change for heart. you. Like I expect, I expect my hunting and fishing to change as my kids grow up. You know, like you know, obviously you've done some guiding, and you've you know spent some time in that field as well like i already enjoy sharing what i do with others but i imagine once my kids actually take a stronghold if they do that hunting and fishing will be a passion of mine but it'll be a very different value or form from what it is now you'll, you'll be the same yeah i don't actually go hunting much anymore I've, i film a lot of hunting but i don't hunt i just figured out how to hold my uh my handy cam and my shotgun at the same time i'm shooting one-handed so i, <laughs> I hold my camera in my left hand and my shotgun in my right and i can shoot ducks like that now it's oh great. that works <laughs> yeah before I, I either dropped the camera and picked up the gun or i just didn't hold the gun and the camera at the same time but now i figured out i can actually hold the camera and the gun at the same time and shoot ducks and film it it's great <laughs> well there you go be full of be full of bird footage next year mate I'm getting my hunting passion I go. I have to say I was losing my passion for hunting a little bit after all of this filming shit over the last couple of years because I'd go out and I wouldn't hunt I'd just walk around filming others hunt but I'm getting it back now I'm, I'm not filming as many of my hunts as I used to so I've, but I guess that's where bow hunting's so good I don't even film any of my bow hunts it's too difficult and that's my time off I leave my camera at home and I go bow hunting it's mm-hmm. great yeah no it's definitely and that, that's I mean, I've talked about this before, but that's why I stayed out of guiding in New Zealand. I didn't want, I didn't want it to ruin what it is. I didn't want my passion to be ruined. Yeah, and I've, I've always stuck with way. it. Good on you, mate. And it's, it's, I think that's a wise decision. I used to be a really keen fly fisherman in my early twenties and my teen teenage years, and I did a bit of fly fishing guiding, and it ruined it for me. Totally ruined it. Yep. So hang in there. If you're a hunter, don't start guiding because it's shit. <laughs> well, the, and that's a, that's definitely grass paddock that isn't fucking that green on the other side yeah well that's it you know you're doing your passion for your job which is good sometimes but then if you do it for too long like I've been doing it for too long then I guess I've forgotten how to appreciate it I need to go and work as a builder or a labourer for a a couple of months (laughs) all you listeners out there that are currently labouring and building I really appreciate the hard work that you're doing and listening to this shit and watching my productions 
so that I can keep on keeping on and, and living the dream. So I'll take my hat off to you and I really do appreciate it. <laughs> so on that, Josh, how do, how do people follow you? Oh, just look me up on the old YouTube, I guess, or the old... Uh, yep. So uh, Josh James, Facebook. the Kiwi yeah, Bushman. Josh James, the Kiwi Bushman. If you just Google and Josh James, I'll pop up and then you can... Check out my stuff there. YouTube's probably so. Carry on. Yeah, I'll, I'll put all the links to your YouTube and um, Facebook and stuff on the podcast notes for our international guys because they they may or may not be followers at this point. Oh, good as gold. Thank you. So, I'll, oh yeah, bang that all on there. But other than that, man, it's been good having a conversation with you. It's for somebody I've never talked to. It was nice and relaxed, which is good. I enjoy that. G'day! Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.